Chapter 4. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. A Strange Manuscript Found in a Copper Cylinder by James DeMille. Chapter 4. The Sight of Human Beings. The sight of human beings, thus unexpectedly found, filled us with strange feelings, feelings which I cannot explain. The country was still iron-bound and dark and forbidding, and the stream ran on in a strong current, deep, black as ink, and resistless as fate. The sky behind was lighted up by volcanic glare which still shone from afar, and in front the view was bounded by the icy heights of a mountain chain. Here was, indeed, a strange country for human habitation, and strange, indeed, were the human beings whom we saw. "'Shall we land?' said Agnew. "'Oh, no,' said I. "'Don't be hasty. The elements are sometimes kinder than men, and I feel safer here, even in this river of death, than ashore with such creatures as those.' Agnew made no reply. We watched the figures on the shore. We saw them coming down, staring and gesticulating. We drew on nearer to them till we were able to see them better. A nearer view did not improve them. They were human beings, certainly, but of such an appalling aspect that they could only be likened to animated mummies. They were small, thin, shriveled, black, with long matted hair and hideous faces, they all had long spears, and wore about the waist short skirts that seemed to be made of some sea-fowl. We could not imagine how these creatures lived, or where. There were no signs of vegetation of any kind, not a tree or a shrub. There were no animals, but there were great flocks of birds, some of which seemed different from anything that we had ever seen before. The long spears which the natives carried might possibly be used for catching these, or for fishing purposes. This thought made them seem less formidable, since they would thus be instruments of food rather than weapons of war. Meanwhile we drifted on as before, and the natives watched us, running along the shore abreast of us so as to keep up with the boat. There seemed over a hundred of them. We could see no signs of any habitation, no huts, however humble but we concluded that their abodes were further inland. As for the natives themselves, the longer we looked at them, the more abhorrent they grew. Even the wretched aborigines of Van Diemen's Land, who have been classed lowest in the scale of humanity, were pleasing and congenial when compared to these, and the land looked worse than Tierra del Fuego. It looked like a land of iron, and its inhabitants like fiends. Agnew again proposed to land, but I refused. No, said I, I'd rather starve for a week and live on hope. Let us drift on. If we go on, we may have hope if we choose, but if we land here, we shall lose even that. Can we hope for anything from such things as these? Even if they prove friendly, can we live among them? To stay here is worse than death. Our only hope is to go on. Agnew made no reply, and we drifted on for two hours, still followed by the natives. They made no hostile demonstrations. They merely watched us, apparently from motives of curiosity. All this time we were drawing steadily nearer to the line of lofty mountains, 
which with their icy crests rose before us like an inaccessible and impassable barrier, apparently closing up all the farther progress. Nor was there any indication of any pass or any opening, however narrow, through which the great stream might run. Nothing was there but one great unbroken wall of iron cliffs and icy summits. At last we saw that the sloping shores grew steeper until, about a mile or two before us, they changed to towering cliffs that rose up on each side for about a thousand feet above the water. Here the stream ran and became lost to view, as completely as though swallowed up by the earth. We can go no farther, said Agnew. See, this stream seems to make a plunge there into the mountains. There must be some deep canyon there with cataracts. To go on a certain death, we must stop here, if only to deliberate. Say, shall we risk it among these natives? After all, there is not, perhaps, any danger among them. They are little creatures and seem harmless. They are certainly not very good-looking, but then, you know, appearances often deceive, and the devil's not so black as he's painted. What do you say? I suppose we can do nothing else, said I. In fact, I could see that we had reached a crisis in our fate. To go on seemed certain death. To stop was our only alternative, and as we were armed, we should not be altogether at the mercy of these creatures. Having made this decision, we acted upon it at once, for in such a current there was no time for delay. And so, seizing the oars, we brought the boat ashore. As we approached, the crowd of natives stood awaiting for us, and looked more repulsive than ever. We could see the emaciation of their bony frames. Their toes and fingers were like bird's claws. Their eyes were small and dull and weak, and sunken in cavernous hollow, from which they looked at us like corpses, a horrible sight. They stood quietly, however, and without any hostile demonstration, holding their spears carelessly resting upon the ground. "'I don't like the looks of them,' said I. "'I think I had better fire a gun.' Why, cried Agnew, for heaven's sake, man, don't hurt any of them. Oh, no, said I, I only mean to inspire a little wholesome respect. Saying this, I fired in the air. The report rang out with long echoes, and as the smoke swept away, it showed us all the natives on the ground. They had seated themselves with their hands crossed in their laps, and they sat looking at us as before, but with no manifestation of fear or even surprise. I had expected to see them run, but there was nothing of the kind. This puzzled us. Still, there was no time now for any further hesitation. The current was sweeping us toward the chasm between the cliffs, and we had to land without delay. This we did, and as I had another barrel still loaded and a pistol, I felt that with these arms and those of Agnew we should be able to defend ourselves. It was in this state of mind that we landed and secured the boat by means of the grappling iron. The natives now all crowded around us, making many strange gestures which we did not understand. Some of them bowed low, others prostrated themselves. On the whole, these seemed like marks of respect, and it occurred to me that they regarded us as, as superior beings of some sort. It was evident that there was nothing like hostility in their minds. At the same time, the closer survey which I now made of them filled me with renewed horror. Their meager frames small, watery, lackluster eyes, hollow, cavernous sockets, sunken cheeks, protruding teeth, claw-like fingers, and withered skins, all made them look more than ever like animated mummies, and I shrank from them involuntarily, 
as one shrinks from contact with a corpse. Agno, however, was very different, and it was evident that he felt no repugnance whatsoever. He bowed and smiled at them and shook hands with half a dozen of them in succession. The handshaking was a new thing to them, but they accepted it in a proper spirit and renewed their bows and prostrations. After this they all offered us their lances. This certainly seemed like an act of peace and goodwill. I shook my head and declined to touch them, but Agnew accepted one of them and offered his rifle in return. The one to whom he offered it refused to take it. He seemed immensely gratified because Agnew had taken his lance, and the others seemed disappointed at his refusal to take theirs. But I felt my heart quake as I saw him offer his rifle, and still more when he offered it to one or two others, and only regained my composure as I perceived that his offer was refused by all. They now made motions for us to follow, and we all set forth. "'My dear Moore,' Agno said cheerily, "'they're not a bad lot. They mean well.' They can't help their looks. You're too suspicious and reserved. Let's make friends with them and get them to help us. Do as I do. I tried to, but found it impossible, for my repugnance was immovable. It was like the horror which one feels toward rats, cockroaches, earwigs, or serpents. It was something that defied reason. These creatures seemed like human vermin. We marched inland for about half a mile crossed a ridge, and came to a valley, or rather a kind of hollow, at the other side of which we found a cave with a smoldering fire in front. The fire was made of coal, which must exist here somewhere. It was highly bituminous and burned with a great blaze. The day was now drawing to a close. Far away I could see the lurid glow of the volcanoes, which grew brighter as the day declined. Above, the skies twinkled with innumerable stars, and the air was filled with the moan of rushing waters. We entered the cave. As we did so, the natives heaped coal upon the fire, and the flames arose, lighting up the interior. We found here a number of women and children, who looked at us without either fear or curiosity. The children looked like little dwarfs. The women were hags, hideous beyond description. One old woman in particular, who seemed to be an authority, was actually terrible in her awful and repugnant ugliness. Nightmare dream never furnished forth a more frightful object. This nightmare hag prostrated herself before each of us with such an air of self-immolation that she looked as though she wished us to kill her at once. The rough cave, the red light of the fire, all made the scene more awful, and a wild thought came to me that we had actually reached, while yet living, the infernal world, and that this was the abode of devils. Yet their actions, it must be confessed, were far from devilish. Everyone seemed eager to serve us. Some spread out couches formed of the skins of birds for us to sit on. Others attended the fire. Others offered us gifts of large and beautiful feathers, together with numerous trinkets of rare and curious workmanship. This kind attention on their part was a great puzzle to me, and I could not help suspecting that beneath all this there must be some sinister design. Resolving to be prepared for the worst, I quietly reloaded the empty barrel of my rifle, and watched with the utmost vigilance. As for Agnew, he took it all in the most unsuspicious manner. He made signs to them, shook hands with them, accepted their gifts, and even tried to do the agreeable to the formidable hags and the child fiends around him. He soon attracted the chief attention, and while all looked admiringly upon him, I was left to languish in comparative neglect. 
At length a savory odor came through the cave, and a repast was spread before us. It consisted of some large fowl that looked like a goose, but was twice as large as the largest turkey I had ever seen. The taste was like that of a wild goose, but rather fishy. Still, to us it seemed delicious, for our prolonged diet of raw seal had made us ready to welcome any other food whatever, and this fowl, whatever it was, would not have been unwelcome to any hungry man. It was evident that these people lived on the flesh of birds of various sort. All around us we saw the skins of birds dried with the feathers on, and used for clothing, for mats, and for ornaments. The repast being finished, we both felt greatly strengthened and refreshed. Agnew continued to cultivate his new acquaintances, and, seeing me holding back, he said, "'More, old fellow, these good people give me to understand that there is another place better than this, and want me to go with them. Will you go?' At this a great fear seized me. "'Don't go!' I cried. "'Don't go! We are close by the boat here, and if anything happens we can easily get to it.' Agnew laughed in my face. "'Why, you don't mean to tell me,' said he, "'that you are still suspicious, and after all that dinner?' Why, man, if they wanted to harm us, would they feast us in this style? Nonsense, man. Drop your suspicions and come along. I shook my head obstinately. Well, said he, if I thought there was anything in your suspicions, I would stay with you. But I am confident they mean nothing but kindness, so I'm going off to see the place. You'll be back again, said I. Oh, yes, said he, of course I'll come back and sleep here. With this words he left, and nearly all the people accompanied him. I was left behind with the women and children and about a dozen men. These men busied themselves with some work over bird skins. The women were occupied with some other work over feathers. No one took any notice of me. There did not seem to be any restraint upon me, nor was I watched in any way. Once the nightmare hag came and offered me a small roasted fowl about the size of a woodcock. I declined it, but at the same time this delicate attention certainly surprised me. I was now beginning to struggle with some success against my feelings and abhorrence, when suddenly I caught sight of something which chased away every other thought and made my blood turn cold in my veins. It was something outside. At the mouth of the cave, by the fire which was still blazing bright and lighting up the scene, I saw four men who had just come to the cave. They were carrying something which I first supposed to be a sick or wounded companion. On reaching the fire they put it down and I saw, with a thrill of dismay, that their burden was neither sick nor wounded, but dead, for the corpse lay rigid as they had placed it. Then I saw the nightmare hag approaching it with a knife. An awful thought came to me, the crowning horror. The thought soon proved to be but too well founded. The nightmare hag began to cut, and in an instant had detached the arm of the corpse, which she thrust among the coals in the very place where lately she had cooked the fowl. Then she went back for more. For a moment my brain reeled, and I gasped for breath. Then I rose and staggered out, I know not how. No one tried to stop me, nor did anyone follow me, and for my part I was ready to blow out the brains of the first who dared to approach me. In this way I reached the open air, and passed by the hag and the four men as they were busy at their awful work. But at this point I was observed and followed. A number of men and women came after me, jabbering at their uncouth language and gesticulating, I warned them off angrily. They persisted, and though none of them were armed, yet I saw that they were unwilling to have me leave the cave, and I supposed that they would try to prevent me by force. 
the absence of Agnew made my position a difficult one. Had it not been for this, I would have burst through them and fled to the boat, but as long as he was away I felt bound to wait, and though I longed to fly, I could not for his sake. The boat seemed to be a haven of rest. I longed to be in her once more and drift away, even if it should be to my death. Nature was here less terrible than man, and it seemed better to drown in these waters, to perish amid rocks and whirlpools, than to linger here amid such horrors as these. These people were not like human beings. The vilest and lowest savages that I had ever seen were not so odious as these. A herd of monkeys would be far more congenial, a flock of wolves less abhorrent. They had the caricature of the human form. They were the lowest of humanity. Their speech was a mockery of language, their faces devilish, their kindness a cunning pretense, and most hideous of all was the nightmare hag that had prepared the cannibal repast. I could not begin hostilities, for I had to wait for Agnew. So I stood and looked, and then walked away for a little distance. They followed me closely, with eager words and gesticulations, though as yet no one touched me or threatened me. Their tone seemed rather one of persuasion. After a few paces I stood still, with all of them around me. The horrible repast showed plainly all that was in store for us. They received us kindly and fed us well, only to devote us to the most abhorrent of deaths. Agnew, in his mad confidence, was only ensuring his own doom. He was putting himself completely in the power of devils, who were incapable of pity and strangers to humanity. To make friends with such fiends was impossible, and I felt that our only plan was to rule by terror, to seize, to slay, to conquer. But still I had to wait for him, and did not dare to resort to violence while he was absent. So I waited, while the savages gathered round me, contending themselves with guarding me, and neither touching me nor threatening me. And all this time the hag went on, intent on her preparation of the horrible repast. While standing there looking, listening, waiting for Agnew, I noticed many things. Far away the volcanoes blazed, and the northern sky was red with a lurid light. There, too, higher up, the moon was shining overhead. The sky was gleaming with stars, and all over the heavens there shone the luster of the aurora australis, brighter than I had ever seen, surpassing the moon and illuminating all. It lighted up the haggard faces of the devils around me, and it again seemed to me as though I had died and gone to the land of woe, an iron land, a land of despair, with lurid fires all aglow and faces of fear. Suddenly there burst upon my ears the report of a gun, which sounded like a thunder-pearl, and echoed in long reverberations. At once I understood it. My fears had proved true. These savages had enticed Agnew away to destroy him. In an instant I burst through the crowd around me, and ran wildly in the direction of that sound, calling his name as I ran, at the top of my voice. I heard a loud cry, then another report. I hurried on, shouting his name in a kind of frenzy. The strange courage of these savages had already impressed me deeply. They did not fear our guns. They were all attacking him, and he was alone, fighting for his life. Then there was another report. It was his pistol. I still ran on, still shouted to him. At last I received an answer. He had perhaps heard me and was answering, or at any rate he was warning me, more, he cried. Fly, fly, fly to the boat. Save yourself. 
Where are you? I cried as I still rushed on. Fly more, fly. Save yourself. You can't save me. I'm lost. Fly for your life. Judging from his cries, he did not seem far away. I hurried on. I could see nothing of him. All the time the savages followed me. None were armed, but it seemed to me that they were preparing to fling themselves upon me and overpower me with their numbers. They would capture me alive, I thought, bind me, and carry me back, reserving me for a future time. I turned and waved them back. They took no notice of my gesture. Then I ran on once more. They followed. They could not run so fast as I did, and so I gained on them rapidly, still shouting to Agnew. But there was no response. I ran backwards and forwards, crossing and recrossing, doubling and turning, pursued all the time by the savages. At last, in rage and in despair, I fired upon them, and one of them fell. But to my dismay, the others did not seem to care one whit. They did not stop for a moment, but pursued as before. My situation was now plain in all its truth. They had enticed Agnew away. They had attacked him. He had fought and had been overpowered. He had tried to give me warning. His last words had been for me to fly, to fly, yes, for he knew well that it was better far for me to go to death through the raging torrent than to meet the fate which had fallen upon himself. For him there was now no more hope. That he was lost was plain. If he were still alive he would call to me, but his voice had been silenced for some time. All was over, and that noble heart that had withstood so bravely and cheerily the rigors of the storm and the horrors of our desperate voyage had been stilled in death by the violence of miscreants. I paused for a moment. Even though Agnew was dead, I could not bear to leave him, but felt as though I ought to share his fate. The savages came nearer. At their approach I hesitated no longer. That fate was too terrible. I must fly." But before I fled, I turned in fury to wreak vengeance upon them for their crimes. Full of rage and despair, I discharged my remaining rifle barrel into the midst of the crowd. Then I fled toward the boat. On the way, I had a frightful thought that she might have been set adrift. But on approaching the place, I found her just there as I had left her. The savages, with their usual fearlessness, still pursued. For a moment, I stood on the shore with the grapple in my hand and the boat close by, and as they came near, I discharged my pistol into the midst of them. Then I sprang into the boat. The swift current bore me away, and in a few minutes the crowd of pursuing demons disappeared from view. End of chapter 4